Welcome. I've been in church a long time, and I've had lots of Palm Sundays under my belt. And I only remember one, which I'm going to tell you about in a few minutes. It's hard to go to church over and over and over and over again and have something that will anchor you and you can remember, right? And Palm Sunday just happened to not be one of those days. And so when Aaron asked, he said, would you teach on Palm Sunday? I said, sure. And then I got to thinking about Palm Sunday. I don't know anything about Palm Sunday other than there's a donkey involved and a few palm branches and that's about it. You know, I didn't, and we sang a lot of songs. That was good. So uh, my recollection came up and my wife and I are talking about this and we were, I, I, 50 years ago, I don't know, something like that. We were in a choir. And because it was Palm Sunday, the place was full and the choir had to stay up behind. And so we got an observation of everybody, you know. And so when you're bored, you just watch people and you want to know what they're thinking and doing. And so anyway, uh, at this particular church, if you were in ministry, uh, you had to sit on the platform. So had all these important people sitting on the platform. And down at the very end was the youth pastor. Youth pastors get tired. I mean, they just are. And I watched him during the sermon, and he was kind of dozing a little bit. And the sermon was about this guy using palm branches as an analogy for parts of your life that you're going to lay down at Jesus' feet. You're going to give him say, your money, or you're going to give him your time, or you're going to give him your relationship, or your suffering, or whatever. And he had, I don't remember what he had. I, all I remember was palm leaves being laid down over and over and over again. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. But none of them stuck with me. I was just still watching the people. And then the pastor gets up at the very end and says, uh, looks over here at Andy, who happens to be the youth pastor, and he says, Andy, would you come up and give the benediction? So Andy kind of wakes up a little bit, <laughs> and he gets up to the podium, and he says, gets everybody to stand. He says, now, let's pray. Bows his head, says, dear God, help us to cast down our fig leaves. <laughs> it's a part of scripture, but it wasn't what Palm Sunday was about, you know? <laughs> but guess what? I remember that Palm Sunday. <laughs> You may not remember today, but you'll remember that story. <laughs> Some of you have heard me attempt to speak uh, regarding my own personal history. Really, all I have to give you is me, so here we go. Uh, I, I grew up in the church. I've not fought with God in terms of having a crisis of faith. I've not uh, battled that kind of thing. I've... I've had theological battles along the way, and the one I want to share with you this morning is the one that I'm in right now, and I would like to encourage you to come with me. And maybe you'll see why here in a minute. Uh, I call it legal theology I grew up on, and legal theology comes out of Rome, and it's linear in its thinking, <clears throat> and it's like it takes place in a courtroom, and uh, so you're saved or you're not saved, and uh, Jesus has to pay for your sins, and it's a legal instruction, and there's language like that in Scripture where 
you have Jesus as your advocate and uh, Satan as the accuser. And so we get this courtroom scene and you're saved or you're not saved and you're going to hell or you're going to heaven. And, and it's true. But it's not enough. There's more to the story. And I would say maybe another way to think about legal theology is think about religion. Being religious. And I'm going to pick on our music a little bit. Our lyrics sometimes give us kind of wrong pieces of data about uh, like we have to come to church to meet with God. Now we kind of know that's not true because somewhere we've heard that God will meet with us anywhere but we still feel like there's a sanctuary we need to go to. And there, all through scripture, there's this picture of the temple. First it was a tabernacle when they were wandering around in the wilderness, and then it became a temple when they finally got into the promised land. We're going to talk about that, and I'll take you through that history in just a few minutes. But this religious idea is so compelling, and I think we are legalists at the core. We like to be right and wrong. We like to have somebody to blame. We like to be able to be victims and poor little me. And we like to have an answer for things. We like to have a solution. We like to have things that make sense. And religion will give that to you. I don't think the scriptures do, but I think religion does. I don't think the church I grew up in meant to give me that message. I just think I got that message. So today, I would say, let's see if we can't change that just a little bit. Come on a journey with me. This is a way to think about this journey just a little bit. It's usual for people to think of God as the supreme being. You have to work with me a little bit. The supreme being, Lord and master of all creation. So far we'd all check the boxes, right? The omnipotent higher power who's in charge of everything. Such a God is separate from us, transcendent, above, beyond us, and he's capable of giving us good things and bad things. There's a theological issue right there, but that's for another time. We naturally pray for the good things we want, and we, re and we pray for relief from the bad things we don't want. And usually it doesn't work. We don't get all we want, and we get too much of what we don't want. Logically, then, the transcendent out there, omnipotent out there, and separate God seems arbitrary at best and unloving at worst. Sometimes we think about God as a cosmic accountant, that he's keeping track of what you're doing, what you're not doing, what you should be doing. So then we get shoulds and oughts and shoulda, woulda, couldas. Religion. That's religion. That's a cosmic accountant. That's a capricious, holy God that looks at you legally and says you have to earn your way. Well, the contemplatives move us in a different direction and they ask this kind of question. Is God out there or is God close? Is he transcendent or is he imminent? We need both. Both are true. God is our center, they say, closer to us than we are to ourselves. Maybe I should read that again. 
closer to us than we are to ourselves. We are immersed in God, and God is immersed in us. So if the transcendent God out there is arbitrary or unloving to us, that same God is being arbitrary or unloving to the God in here. We want him to be loving to us, but a lot of times it feels like he's unloving. We've prayed and prayed and prayed, or we've gone to church, or we've dedicated to the lift team, or I don't know, whatever you do, and, and you think that somehow that service is going to earn you extra space in God's economy. Well, that is a legal theology. That's a religion. I want to be in an intimate and progressive friendship with a very good and very beautiful God. I'm going to read that again. I want to be in an intimate, intimate and progressive friendship with a very good and a very beautiful God. That means I don't want to be afraid of him in the sense of paralyzing anxious fear. I want to be stand in awe of him. That's the kind of fear I want, the kind of respect that just jaw-dropping but so you know what I'm talking about, that is true of any one of you. When I meet you, when I hear your story, when I listen to your heart, it's always jaw-dropping to me. And there's another piece of this puzzle. Part of what it makes, makes it jaw-dropping is that you are a mystery. I've been married for a long time, 57, 8 years, and in relationship with the gal I love for 63 <laughs> and I can't do anything about that except that she remains like I think God is an incomprehensible mystery we had some mysterious moments coming to church this morning actually which I won't share with you no, I, I just think I'm I'm stunned by how little I know, how much I love, how little I know, how often I miss, how strong my longings are, how seldom they're realized. God's made us in some mysterious ways. Awe. Do you go through your week? jaw-dropping awe being part of it? Most of us don't, I don't think. And I think it has to do with this day in history, this Palm Sunday, what coalesced in Jesus' life, walking through the gates of Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people that praised him, and the people that didn't were significant. And there's a story around uh, his entering into the city about uh, a fig tree that he curses, and the disciples don't understand why he curses it. And, and a little bit later, you find out that he's trying to tell them something, and he's trying to illustrate it. And then I didn't realize this, but in part of this storyline is Jesus cast or ran money changers out of the temple twice, once early in his ministry in John 2, and once late in his ministry which is this, this particular day when he enters. So twice he did it. They wouldn't have let him do it every week, I don't think. But, you know, he, he did made this big mess at the first, and then he came back and did it again. Because he's saying that the temple matters. 
Because the temple is where God dwells, where his glory dwells. He wants to be with you. And he wants to be with you in knowledge. It means that's the intimate part. He knows you. He knows me. And we, we think we understand it, and then we violate it all the time. So just go on a journey with me, will you? And uh, let's see if we can't fit together this historical line of God wanting to dwell with us. And why it's so important. So I want to read this verse in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, maybe two verses, I don't know. Uh, verse 25, 26. It starts in the middle of a sentence, so listen to it. He says, the preaching of the word of God, that is the mystery. Now mystery here is different than a mystery theater, for instance, or something that you have to unravel. This is something that's been hidden for a long time. It's not something that can't, you can't get at and reveal. And, he, and Paul is saying, this mystery, which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, and here it is, which is Christ, where? In you, the hope of glory. Not Christ out there. Now, Paul uses this picture, word picture, in you, I don't know, a dozen times or more in his writing. And usually, you just run over it. Oh yeah, that's nice, Christ in us, of course, you know. But do we live life as if that's true, that we're that intimately bound together, that that's a, a unity that you can't imagine almost? Well, this is the start of the new covenant. This is the core blessing of the new covenant. Now, just for historical purposes, you have the old covenant, which is the Old Testament. And I'm going to, we're going to start with God in Genesis 1 and what God longs for and what he desires is to dwell with us. He makes Genesis 1 and 2. If that's all you had of the Bible and you didn't have chapter 3 and, and you just spent some time thinking about what God's doing in chapters 1 and 2, he's, he's doing everything he can to build a place where he can dwell with us. A dwelling place, a home, a house, a, 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 a place where you're in proximity to one another, a place where you can talk, a place where you can uh, eat and drink and enjoy and taste and see and savor life. Well, let's look at how people have looked at this for a long time in Isaiah 30. Verses 15 and 18. By the way, I'm going to go through lots of scriptures. Some will be up here, some won't. So if you're note takers, I'll try to give you the references. I'm not very good at that, but I'll try. Anyway, Isaiah 30. He says, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. By the way, the word saved is the, is the root word for Jesus. Jesus means savior. And what sa salvation means is to be whole, to be made whole and integrous, to be put back together. It's the word that eventually morphs into holiness. So they're all attached together. Look at what Isaiah says here. This is what the Lord, the Holy One of Israel has said, in repentance and rest, you'll be saved. It's not, not in power and more prestige and more money and more control, but what? 
Just the opposite, in opening your hands in repentance and rest, in changing the way you think, that's all repentance actually means. And he says, in quietness and trust is your strength. Quietness, not, not ramping up those people who are triggered by right and wrong and are justice warriors, they're usually not very quiet. Then at the bottom, in verse 18, he says, then the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He longs to be gracious. Listen to the language. He wants to be what? Gracious to us. And he waits on high to have compassion on us. He waits. He longs and he waits. Two things we don't often put together with the holy. Now look at what he says. How blessed are those who long for him. So, do you long for him? Well, quite often... We think we do. <laughs> now let's see what Isaiah says before this in Isaiah 29. He says, because his people draw near with their words and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. There is religion. So we go to church. We come to church on Easter. We Go to Good Friday service. All important. But don't come for the wrong reasons. Don't come for religious reasons. Come for relational reasons. Come because you want to be in relationship with God. Personally. Like he knows you. And he knows your history. And he wants to be with you. That's what God made us for in Genesis 1 and 2. We walked out of the garden in chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. And what's the first thing God does? He pursues them. And he says, where are you? Like he didn't know where they were? Excuse me, God's not geographically challenged, I don't think. You know, he just, he, he knew where they were, but he was calling them to a Starbucks date. You know, you guys have made a bad choice. It's really going to be a rough ride. You're going to need somebody to walk with you. Come on, let's do this together. He doesn't stop pursuing because he wants this relationship, not this religion. And we quickly turn it into something we can manage, manipulate, control. Say, if I, if I put my money in the offering, or if, and I love the, what you said about raising money, it's not for you, for pity's sakes, it's for the kingdom. And it's God who gives you the power to make wealth in the first place. Fight to get that in place so that it's not controlling you, you are in charge of it, if you will. Well, in verse 15 of Isaiah 29, it says, Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, whose deeds are done in a dark place. They say, who sees us? Who knows us? And Isaiah says, you turn things around. You just don't get it, do you? You don't get the fact that God does know you, and he wants to know you, and he wants to know you intimately, and he's not playing a game with you. Come on. Psalm 26, verse 8. O oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Here's that word again, dwells. Where does his glory dwell? It dwells in his house. We're going to find out what that house is here in a few minutes. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing. I have asked from the Lord, not five things, not two things, not ten things, one thing. 
What's the one thing? He says, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because it's where God is, and it's where he wants you to be. And I think a lot of times we just kind of turn around and don't pay any attention to whether that's the truth or not. Because we've been taught a religion instead of a relationship. Psalm 84 says, better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. So we still have this imagery of house, right? In Isaiah 8, which is not going to be up here, it says something like this. It says, uh, then God becomes a sanctuary. In other words, it's, it's not a place. It's not a building. It's not a house, if you will, in that sense. It's your relationship with the holy in some way. Well, let's take a trip with God, meeting with his people. He starts off wanting to do it ideally in Genesis 1 and 2. We mess that up. So when we leave Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we, we have to take our, our beginning piece that God so desires his deepest desire is that he can dwell with us. And then we walk out of the garden. Here comes Genesis 12. He has this relationship with Abraham. He makes a covenant with him. Covenants are different than contracts. Contracts are religious. Covenants are personal. So that's a whole teaching of its own. But there, when we talk about the old and new covenant, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this relational setup, right? And so in Genesis 12, verse 7 or something like that, about there, Abraham and uh, God get together and he sends him out and promises his, these things and Abraham's a mess, you know, he lies about his wife a couple times and gets in trouble, gets people in trouble and, you know, I mean, he's just on and on you go. Abraham was a great guy. God chose him. God walked with him. He wanted to dwell with him. They went off to Egypt, and then in Exodus 29, 45, he says, I will dwell among the children of Israel and be their God. Later, in Exodus 40, it says that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Well, he built the tabernacle for him in the wilderness. It's a tent, and it, so it could be moved. So when they were wandering around, they could move this tabernacle. Tabernacle means dwelling. It's the same word, actually. So sometimes it says that God wants to tabernacle with us. He wants to dwell with us, and he wanted to be there. So in the tabernacle, there were two things. You know that God was present because it was fire by night and cloud by day. And when it moved, the, the Israelites moved, right? So that was the tabernacle. And then eventually they made it into the promised land, and then there was a guy named Solomon comes along, and he builds a temple, replaces the tabernacle with the temple, it's interesting that Solomon was chosen, not David. And I think it's important because what happens on Palm Sunday with Jesus is part of this storyline. God says to David, I know you want to build a temple, but guess what? You're a man of the sword. You use power because in this fallen world, that's a necessary ingredient somehow in the story. But I want a, a person that's not a man of the sword to build a temple. So he let Solomon do it. And then it says... Uh, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's in Exodus. And then in 2 Chronicles 7, verses 1 through 3, the glory of the Lord enters the temple Solomon builds in Jerusalem. 
So God wants to dwell. And he comes back. He's, he's in the temple. And, and then we think we have to do all these sacrifices to get to God. But the sacrifices are really for our benefit so that God can get to us. It's just a shift, and it's an important one, it seems like to me, when we think about God being more relational with us. But then what happens is that that temple's built in about 900 B.C. So about 500 years later, four or 500 years later, in 500 B.C., the, the north and south tribes have split. There's these obviously pushing back against God and being rebellious. And now, at this point, what happens is uh, they go into three, in three stages, they go into captivity go into exile, and it's Babylonian captivity. Uh, Babylon is a big name in scripture, by the way, and it means more than just uh, one city, but it's, it's the idea of this opposition to uh, the God of the Bible. Anyway, so in 586 BC, the last people are taken into exile, and the temple is destroyed. So the first temple, Solomon's temple is destroyed. And then here's what happens. The glory of God haltingly leaves the temple, slowly, painfully, but surely. So here's what it sounds like in Ezekiel chapter 10. And I'm going to warn you, if you read Ezekiel, if you go to Ezekiel, it'll drive you nuts. I mean, it's the craziest stories. And in this particular one, you've got a bunch of cherubims running around with wheels, flying all around. In fact, you sang about dry bones up here this morning, coming back to life, and that's out of the book of Ezekiel. So it's all kind of stuck together a little bit, but this is what happens in chapter 10. It says in verse 4, then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. This is God slowly removing himself. That's verse 4. You read the rest of the chapter and you get to verse 18 and it finally says this. Then the glory of God departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. Reluctantly, haltingly. He didn't want to go. But these people just kept pushing him, kept rejecting him, kept choosing religion over relationship, kept uh, demanding that they be in control in some way. The very same thing we did in the, in, the, in the garden. Zerubbabel, after they come back, after about 70 years from exile, rebuilds a temple. So now we have the second temple. Guess what? No glory. 400 years later, after the, the Old Testament, New Testament shift, does God come back to the temple? No, no glory. It's about 600 years after the glory left the temple of Solomon that the glory of God enters the second temple formally and finally in Jesus. So now let's, let's listen to how I get there. Jesus on this day when he walks into the Jerusalem, he does a couple things. He cleanses the temple of the money changers and he actually curses that temple by relating it to the fig tree. He said, this is not the place. I have come as the incarnate place that you can be 
Christ what? In you, the hope of glory. He becomes flesh. He dwells among us. Listen to John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Jesus at this time. This is Jesus entering this last week of his life here. He dwells among us. And we see his glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were related and realized through Jesus. The law is what? Religion. Grace and truth is what? Relationship. I think what he's calling us to is to relationship because the law is for people who don't follow Jesus. Jesus took care of the law for us who are trying to follow after him. And my call to you today is can you allow God to dwell with you and in you in ever greater ways? First Peter uses this analogy, chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. It says, And coming to him as a living stone, which had been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. What do you build a temple out of? Well, stones. So Peter's using this word picture to help us understand. This is a living stone. And then he says, verse 5, You also, that's every one of us, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What's that? What's a spiritual sacrifice? It's your being present with God. You're recognizing that he put you in this place. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul's talking to us, and he says, Don't you know that you are the temple of God? You are the temple of God. Huh. Where does God want to dwell? With us. And it changed in Jesus. What Jesus brought, he brought back the glory of God on that day. That's not just a fig leaf or a palm frond. This is a relationship. This is what we're longing for. This is what we are made for. This is what God wants to do with us. He wants to dwell with us. 1 Corinthians 3. You are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, that you're not your own. I don't know what to say to you other than I think you want, on this Palm Sunday, if you ride into the same city as Jesus did, what you're doing is you're accepting what he's doing for you and for me. And that's to move us from, from any possibility of making what he and, and the Spirit and the Father want, which is to dwell with us, to make that some kind of a religious act, and instead to make it a personal relationship. One where you have breakfast together, which you did with his disciples after he comes back from resurrection, or, or one with where you 
do some project together or just hang out together or just... That sounds too superficial, doesn't it? Jesus says to his disciples during this week, he says, I no longer want you to be my friend, my slaves or servants. I want you to be my friend. When I teach about friendship with Jesus to pastors, they almost always resist it. Isn't it fascinating? It seems like it's not holy enough or it's not, doesn't give it enough gravitas. But Jesus says the higher part of a relationship is the friendship. That's what we're made for. Somebody that knows you, that likes you, that wants to hang out with you. I have a huge acquaintance volume around the world. Not my fault, but I have. I know a lot of people. Just like you know more about me than I'm going to know about you at the end of this time, right? You may not want that, but sorry, you're stuck. You chose to be here. Anyway, uh, it's hard to have a reciprocated relationship with people. We just don't do it very often, and, it's, and it takes a lot of energy and work, but guess what? God wants to what? Have that reciprocated relationship with us. That's what it means when it says, He dwells with us. Okay. Let me pray. Father, thanks for not backing off on the way you designed your creation in the first place. You so wanted to dwell with us that that longing stays strong across the whole arc of history. And it's realized in Jesus on Palm Sunday, and it's given to us on that day, and we have it today with us. Forgive us for thinking that we still have to earn something that's already been given to us. And no matter how hard we try, we can't receive something uh, that we've produced. We only get to receive what you've given to us, and that is your presence. And I just pray that we will operate out of that in ever-increasing ways. And when doing that, we will honor you. Thanks, Father, for this time, and thanks for the freedom we have in our culture to think about this and to relax because we're not being threatened, but then to operate out of this starting today for the rest of our lives. A relationship, not a religion. In Jesus' name, amen.